0: you're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Welcome everyone to uh, today's uh, joint seminar from the ODI and uh, the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, uh, ICAI, um, from here in London. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We're, we're delighted um, that uh, we have such a larger audience today and uh, such great panellists uh, for this event uh, around the ICAI's recent report on the African Development Bank. Um, just before we uh, introduce you to the panelists, um, a little bit of housekeeping um, the, our four panelists are going to speak in turn, and then we 're going to take a q and A. Q&A. Um, please uh, put your uh, questions through the Q and A facility at the bottom of this uh, of the zoom uh, panel. Um, you can send those as uh, during the presentations or at the end, and we'll also be taking comments um, from the uh, audience as well. Uh, finally, if you wish to uh, do any tweeting, you can use the hashtag, uh, uh, hashtag UKAid, um, and you can also find us at ODIdev D-E-V, and at IKI underscore UK. Okay, um, let me start by uh, introducing our panelists. Um, Firstly, uh, we're, uh, uh, we have the great pleasure to have with us uh, Tamsin Barton. Uh, Tamsin is the Chief Commissioner for, of ICAI, and uh, she's the Senior Executive responsible for all of ICAI's reporting, including to the UK Parliamentary Committees. Um, Tamsin has 25 years' experience in working in international development in a variety of policy and management roles. Uh, most recently, just before ICAI, Uh, She was the Chief Executive of BOND, which I'm sure many of you will know. It's an umbrella uh, body for the UK-based international civil society organisations. And Tamzin has also been trustee for SOAS from 2015 to 2019. And she remains Chairman of the SOAS's Remuneration Committee and Chair of the Southeast Asia Academic Arts Programme. Um, Secondly, joining us is um, uh, Dr. Mark Stevens. Uh, Mark is um, Director of Open Cities, which is a consulting Uh, organization that specializes in sustainable development. Uh, Mark also acted as team leader for the report. Um, Mark has over 30 years of experience uh, acting as a consultant, including at McKinsey, the World Bank, uh, and um, worked in human rights uh, in Palestine. He holds a doctorate from uh, New York University. Then I would like to uh, welcome our two two commentators, uh, both of whom are leading academics in the field of development economics for Africa. Uh, Firstly, uh, Radu Padia, who is a research fellow at the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Nairobi. Uh, Radha uh, has a very broad academic background, uh, including teaching and leading research at the University of Nairobi, and she specializes in finance for development. She's also particularly well known for her academic work in the Kenyan banking sector, uh, banking regulation in East Africa, Africa firms, Africa entrepreneurs, and informality uh, in um, the region. Um, She also has undertaken extensive public service, including as a member of the Governance Body for Financial Sector Deepening, Trust Kenya, and she holds a doctorate from uh, CERES at the University of London. And last, uh, but of course not least, we have uh, Eke Icpe. Uh, Eke is a senior lecturer at, in uh, development economics at the African Leadership Centre at King's College in London. Her academic research focuses on, the, uh, on African development and security issues, and she has also acted in multiple senior advisory roles in policy, including for UNICA, ECOWIS, and the UK's All-Parliamentary uh, Committee, group, sorry, Group on Africa. So uh, welcome to all of our panelists. Um, we're going to start with uh, Tamsin and Mark, who are going to uh, give us an overview of the report and its findings. Uh, and then we're going to invite Rada and Ika to comment uh, both on the report and also on the broader context uh, of finance, uh, financial development in Africa. In Africa. Uh, Tamsin, maybe I can invite you
2: to start. Thank you very much, Judith. And, and it's great to be here on my first webinar I see that a lot of people have registered, so I hope that there are there a lot of you out there that I'm, I'm, I'm greeting now. Uh, and some of you possibly may not know what uh, ICAI is and what we're for, so I'll just briefly explain that our job is to report to Parliament and public about whether UK aid is achieving impact and value for money, and the way that we primarily do this is producing evidence-based reports on all aspects of UK aid, Uh, spending, whichever government department is spending it. Uh, We make recommendations on how that can be improved. We communicate our findings, so today is an important part of that. And we have a process for following up on the government's response, because government has to respond within six weeks to the recommendations we make. Uh, We follow up to check whether they are implementing our recommendations. So this is a stage of the process with, with this review, where the government has just Uh, recently responded to our recommendations, so it's a great point to discuss it. Uh, Stepping back a bit, I think it's important uh, for you to know that when we had a consultation about the topics that ICI should review, the the number one topic or area that people felt we should be doing more on was on multilateral aid spending because it's such a high proportion uh, of the spending and uh, perhaps less well understood. But it does does bring extra challenges in reviewing it um, effectively. And this was our first effort in the third ICAI Commission to try and illuminate the value for money uh, for the taxpayer, the individual British pound, if you like. So looking at what the organisation has achieved, um, a bit along the the lines that the, the government's traditionally conducted its multilateral development reviews. So, in the past, uh, ICAI had focused much more only on, on, on the UK's role in relation to multilaterals. Uh, and we have done that, of course, in relation to the recommendations. But there's been a real attempt to engage with what, what the, the bank, in this case, uh, was trying to do. Another way in which this review is remarkable is that it's definitely ICAI's longest ever review. And that's because it happened in, in somewhat turbulent times. Uh, So right at the beginning, uh, then our key uh, counterpart in DFID was redeployed uh, in the context of preparations for Brexit, so that delayed it starting for two months and then it was delayed for another uh, probably more than two months uh, thanks to COVID at at the end, uh, which did complicate matters. Uh, I should also explain for those of you who who know about it, that the independent inquiry into potential ethical breaches uh, on the part of the president of the African Development Bank, Adashina, uh, occurred outside the period when we were were gathering evidence, although by coincidence in the the final stages. Um, This this was part of the context in which we were preparing our, our review for publication. Uh, And there's one other thing that I would particularly like to draw your attention to in our approach to this, because I'm not going to go into the details of the methodology. Uh, But we we did make a a real effort to answer the question uh, as we went, uh, compared to what are we judging, success or lack of success? Uh, So we made a a big effort to find data, figures, evidence, try and compare the African Development Bank uh, with the nearest we could get to peer organisations to, to, to other MDBs, and as appropriate other development financing institutions. So we think that uh, that's something that you know, is of great uh, value and perhaps you, know, you might find there were some surprises in it. Uh, so I think those are all important um, contextual issues. Um, I think what, I, what I'll do now is just briefly go over the purpose and scope of the review. And the review questions and then reveal for those of you that haven't read it how we scored the review. So in in terms of the official purpose it was to assess the effectiveness of DFID support because it was DFID at the time for the African Development Bank Group henceforward the bank uh, in the context of the UK's broader aid priorities. So it considered the benefits of working the benefits of working through the bank as well as any concerns relating to the performance of the bank and how those informed the decision making uh, on financial and other support. The review assessed DFID's management of its contribution to, to the bank uh, and I, I, you know, I should say that uh, while DFID was the lead department during the period under review, another complicating factor in the final stages where we had to tweak our wording here and there to recognise it uh, was that the, the, uh, the merger was announced uh, in June of TIFID with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Uh, so that's why our recommendations are addressed uh, to the FCDO. The scope, uh, I should also clarify, covers the period since 2014, which includes the 13th and 14th replenishments of the African Development Fund. Uh, and it, it includes in its scope what the bank was trying to achieve, its priorities, which it calls the high fives. Uh, you know, Mark will tell you more about that. Includes case studies of, of five countries, um, of which two we visited, as well as visiting uh, the headquarters. And the main questions we were asking were: How well aligned is the bank with the UK's development priorities in Africa? How effective? is the bank at delivering those priorities? And then third, how well does DFID ensure the value for money of its contributions? So for those of you who, who, who hadn't uh, seen how we scored it, uh, we, we scored overall the, the review as a, a green amber. So to get a sense of that, uh, in, in the second phase of the commission, there was only one uh, review that scored green or, or higher. Well, green amber, means is that um, it's a good performance against uh, ICI's criteria for effectiveness and value for money uh, An improvement should be made. In general uh, we, we do tend to find room for improvements in, in all the reviews that we do. So I'm going to hand over to Mark to take you through the findings uh, and then and then he'll come back to me briefly on the
3: recommendations. Thanks. Thanks, Tamsin. Uh, hello, everybody, and thanks so much for making time to join us for this discussion today. Um, I was the team leader of the group that produces reports, um, and the team included Judith, who's chairing the session today, uh, as well as uh, several other people, but particularly Alma Agustin-Strid and Joe Sinclair from the chorus. Um, and I was particularly excited to do the review. Um, I worked at the World Bank uh, back in the 90s, and uh, I've worked on and off with the African Development Bank, uh, but never that closely. So I was really excited to do this um, review and to learn more about the, uh, this institution. So as, as Tamsin said, um, we looked at these three questions of relevance, effectiveness, effectiveness and, and uh, different management of uh, its contribution to the bank. And on the question of relevance, um, you know, the bottom line is we found that um, the bank is very relevant to the UK's development priorities. So at one level, um, you can see this by looking at the bank's focus on infrastructure. So roughly half of the bank's uh, approvals are in the power and transport sectors. And this meets a huge gap in Africa's uh, development needs. Capital markets uh, are not always well-placed to meet that gap. And the multilaterals in general, and um, the, the, uh, the African Development Bank, which I'm gonna call the bank from now on, are well-placed. Um, Differed by contrast, um, spends just over 10% of its uh, uh, total, buff, uh, total um, uh, grants on infrastructure. So uh, the banks focus on infrastructure really complements uh, DFID very well. But more broadly, um, what we very quickly realized um, is that you know, the, the bank is a special institution in Africa. It's the premier development institution on that continent. It's uh, run by Africans for Africa. And it has a credibility uh, with uh, African governments that really goes beyond and transcends uh, what any other organization can in the development field can bring. Um, so the UK's position on the board of the bank, and it's, uh, in particular its position as the largest contributor to the African Development Fund, which is the concessional component of the bank, uh, r- really gives it a, a very s- powerful and special uh, position uh, um, and, and an opportunity to engage right across the continent in a way that it couldn't possibly do on its own. So that's kind of really the point. Um, that is why that is why this institution is so relevant for the UK. You know, that said, there are um, you know the, we, we also noticed some other things. So we saw that as Africa's premier development institution, there's an appetite within the bank to, be, to offer a comprehensive set of services for, for governments. You know, why, why wouldn't you do that if, if you are the, the number one organization? Um, but there's a tension between that ambition to offer a comprehensive menu of interventions and the need to focus on the bank's core strengths, which are really in the area of infra- infrastructure. Um, and the bank has wrestled with this. And certainly one of the things that the UK has been very keen on is that the bank should focus more on its, what it sees as its comparative advantage infrastructure. And in the latest discussions around the replenishment for the fund and the capital increase, which took place at the end of last year, the bank did make a move in that direction and articulated two pillars to try and provide greater focus, one of which was on infrastructure, and one of which was on a sort of institutional capacity building associated with that, so at least in terms of messaging, the bank I think has moved a little bit in that direction of trying to provide more focus um, as 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 the continent's kind of leading development institution um, you know run by, by you know, its, by its members, the bank has to tread a, a fine line between uh, maintaining close relations with its uh, regional members, and at the same time staying objective and remaining arm's length in terms of uh, selection of projects and supervision of those projects. And that is a fine line, which um, uh, can be tricky at times. So borrowers at the bank represent about 60% of the total shareholders, which is uh, way greater than any other regional development bank, and certainly much bigger than the World Bank. Um, so that puts pressure on the bank staff when it's uh, you know, trying to be objective like any other bank would be. That said, um, the concentration of power in the largest shareholders that is actually less than it is elsewhere. And um, if it comes to a vote, a 66% uh, vote is required. So uh, there will always be some non-regional members uh, involved. So bottom line, in terms of relevance, um, we found that the bank is very relevant and um, assigned a a, a green score for that part of the review. On the second component, effectiveness, um, we also found a lot of very positive news. So just looking at independent comparative assessments that have been done, uh, comparing the bank with other organizations, the bank comes out very well. So in a review done in uh, 2018, for example, um, which looked at um, a review done by the Netherlands, another one done by the UK, and one done by MOPAN, which is the Multilateral Organizational Performance Assessment Organization, Only two organizations were ranked in the top quartile for all of those assessments. That was the bank and the World Bank. Um, When you look at the uh, satisfaction rating for projects at the bank, um, the Independent uh, Development Effectiveness uh, Unit within the bank, uh, iDev, found that in 2015, 77% of projects was satisfactory. And that compares very well with the World Bank's um, equivalent, IEG, Independent Evaluation Group's assessment of satisfactory projects um, over the same period. In fact, it's slightly better. So, you know, uh, the bank does well in terms of those arm's length, uh, objective, comparative assessments. And it's also made satisfactory progress towards its own objectives, its own high-five priority objectives. That said, there are obviously areas where it's struggled and and has made less progress. One is in the area of uh, fragile and conflict-affected states. And DFID itself gave um, the bank a low score for that uh, in their multilateral uh, review in 2016 uh, and rated it as weak. But you have to take that in context Um, because basically most organizations struggle in the fragile contexts, Um, partly because they are objectively harder contexts to work in. So if you look at the uh, institutional score that the World Bank, the CPIA score that the World Bank gives to fragile states in Africa versus non fragile states, it's 2.8 versus 3.4. So that's the context in which you're working, and that's why it's tougher. Um, That said, I think the bank compared to the World Bank has been slower to recruit staff into fragile contexts. There's perhaps been less effort to do that and we heard uh, from several quarters that senior management at the bank have uh, not been quite as focused on this issue as they might have been and as they have been in the past. Safeguard policies are um, another area where the bank has struggled a bit, not because the policies themselves are, are weak. They're not. We found that they were absolutely comparable with the World Bank and others. The issue was lack of human resources to actually implement those policies on the ground. And on our um, uh, visits to projects in Uganda and Nigeria, we saw examples of uh, you know, where that lack of resources was resulting in... Uh, Safeguards really not being followed up on, and that's that's uh, detailed in our report. The bank hasn't mobilised as much private finance as as others have done um, in low income countries. France, US, Netherlands, and others have done better, certainly in in sort of the period twenty twelve to fifteen. That's according to data uh, collected by Attridge and others, um, published by ODI itself. Um, so that's an area that needs. Uh, more attention. Trust funds are another area which, um, where the bank has been a lot less successful than, than others, such as the World Bank. Um, and bottom line there is uh, they haven't paid quite as much attention to the fiduciary and results management frameworks that are going to be needed to give other donors, third-party donors, confidence in those trust funds uh, uh, and encourage them to put more money in. So finally, on um, how well the Differ do, managing its contribution to the bank, um, Well, we found, talking to senior managers at the bank, that the UK is well regarded as a technical partner. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's paid a lot of attention to business processes, uh, to issues such as gender, to um, monitoring and, and measurement of results. All of that, um, they've got a lot of energy into Sometimes a little bit too much, bit of a sense sometimes that the UK has waded too far into the weeds, but essentially a very energetic partner. And there are challenges that the UK has been grappling with. The overall culture of performance in the bank isn't necessarily what it might be. Um, there's a bit of a, a preference for form over function, we found, um, rules rather than individual accountability risk aversion. None of which is necessarily surprising. Um, I think when you're in an organization which is uh, criticized left, right and center, you do become risk averse. But that's the kind of culture which the UK has been trying to change. That said, um, we found one example where we felt that the UK had crossed the line um, in its management of performance at the bank which was the um, decision in 2017 to um, require what, what DFID would call a performance improvement plan, which is standard procedure for any project which has scored a B two times in a row. Typically, any project that DFID is supporting that gets a B twice in a row will be put on what's called a performance improvement uh, plan. But in the case of the bank, which is a multilateral organization, Um, applying that performance improvement plan uh, framework uh, resulted in a lot of tension and a lot of pushback and a lot of puzzlement from senior management of the bank. And a sense that in a multilateral context, this was a unilateral type approach that really wasn't fit for purpose. And our sense is that, um, you know, even though uh, it, it did give differed sight of some issues. In hindsight, uh, generally, uh, it's accepted that that perhaps isn't something that would be repeated. And rather, and actually this is what's been introduced in the latest uh, replenishment and uh, capital increase context, rather a, a preferable approach is to provide an incentive for good performance rather than a, a stick for poor performance. Um, so, so overall, we felt as a result of our review, relevance was a green, effectiveness was a green amber, and uh, DFID's management of, um, uh, uh, of its contribution to the bank was also a green amber. So it was a, it was a very positive experience. We had uh, great collaboration from everybody we spoke to in Abidjan and from the field officers in, uh, uh, in Uganda and Nigeria. Um, and so um, yeah looking forward to the discussion and handing back to uh, Tamsin now.
2: Thanks Mark. I just wanted to finish up um, with our recommendations because those are always what we really focus on in our reviews to make sure that we we follow through on on improvements. So as you see the recommendations pick up the themes from the findings. Uh, So the, the first one was specifically on this question of unilateral Uh, reform interventions. So our recommendation was that FCDO should minimize unilateral reform interventions like the 2017 performance improvement plan, which could undermine the multilateral nature uh, of the bank's governance structure, as well as potentially the UK's reputation as an honest broker. Uh, Our second recommendation was that FCDO should take a broader approach to value for money. The cost income ratio ends up always being something that's closely monitored, but here the UK could be uh, losing uh, a a sufficient focus on those areas where there are understaffing, which are priorities for the UK, like fragile and and conflict-affected states, for example. Our third recommendation was that uh, the SCDO should pay particular attention to ensuring that the bank's environmental and social safeguards implemented on the ground. As you heard from Mark, you know, good policy, uh, but really not enough staff and focus to ensure that, that uh, they were happening and that, that creates real risks. Uh, our fourth recommendation was in relation to trust funds. Uh, so if the SCDO is to channel more resources to the bank through this route, which was being considered at the time the review, Uh, then it's important it should help to build the bank's capacity to manage trust funds, including technical assistance to strengthen fiduciary and results management. So that will be not only good for the UK's investment, but will have a multiplier effect, uh, hopefully building confidence to attract more trust fund money for appropriate priorities. The last recommendation is uh, about the country level engagement uh, of the FCDO, with the African Development Bank. That was something that we really found uh, a considerable gap. Uh, and during the, the period of our review, we could see that there was increasing strategic interest in the bank. So it seemed like an opportunity for change. So our recommendation was that country teams could do more to identify synergies with bank investments, encouraging closer working, better information flows, and better informed oversight. So we're looking forward to discussing um, the government's response to these recommendations at, at the hearing in Parliament in due course. I, I believe that there are some FCDO people in this webinar, but I don't know if anyone can speak to the, the government's uh, responses on these, but happy to talk more about them specifically as needed. But uh, for now, I'll pass back as on the ICAi side, uh, we've finished our presentation of the review. Um,
1: thank you very much for, for uh, that and for highlighting uh, both the, you know, the value that was found in the report from the, uh, of the AFDB, particularly in infrastructure, but also uh, its nature as, uh, you know, an African institution, run for Africans, as often described, um, I think to some interesting points about some things that the AFDB could do better, particularly in fragile states and safeguarding, but also some pointers for the UK about how they manage their relationship um, with the with the AfDB. Um, I see too we're getting some interesting questions, so the panelists might like to have a look at uh, at those uh, because I'm going to be phoning them back. We've got um, uh, uh, one from Martin Fowler uh, asking for comments about um, the work of the the AFDB country offices uh, and the work of the FCDO with them and uh, maybe we'd like to comment on uh, how we saw that and uh, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses? There's a couple of uh, questions here from John Gibb, but a little bit more detail about infrastructure and um, also from someone who hasn't given their name, but has asked a very interesting question about uh, some of the uh, debt sustainability issues and whether uh, here we're specifically asking about the African development, but maybe uh, multilateral uh, development banks in general are contributing to debt sustainability problems in the region. Um, But uh, to to the participants, please please keep those questions coming, we're going to deal with those um, after Radha and Eka have spoken. Uh, But Radha, maybe I can uh, hand the floor to you uh, for for your uh, comments and feedback.
0: Okay, thank you very much. It's an honour to be on this panel. Uh, As mentioned by Judith, my name is Radha Upadia and I'm a research fellow at the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Nairobi. And my comments will be based very much more around the context, uh, you know, the role of finance and development and entrepreneurship and development. So if I can start with the context, and I'll really focus on Kenya as the place I know best, but as a place where, uh, what are we? We're rightly lauded as a financial inclusion darling. And in the last 20 years, we've made big strides in terms of our private credit to GDP ratio um, but yet, access to finance still remains an issue. And what are the key issues here? The high price, which has been discussed a lot. But what has not been discussed is um, the, the sectoral issues. So we have a banking sector that has, admits quite openly, uh, there's a Kenya Bankers Association report saying, we don't lend enough to agriculture. Uh, lending to industry over total lending has gone down in the last 20 years. And overall, there's very low lending to SMEs, and the tenor of lending remains very short term. So the finance remains very impatient. So, the reason I give this context is to show that there is a role that a development finance institution can play to fill this gap. Um, And the rest of my comments will be based more around why it remains, um, it still kind of uh, remains a challenge of for multilaterals like AFDB to play this. The other context I'd like to provide is um, the role of industrialization in development. I think we are now all at the stage where it's accepted that sustainable industrialization is needed for economic transformation. It's in the SDG 9. Um, Industrialized Africa is part of the high five priority for AFDB. And it's also a priority for Kenya in terms of the Big Four agenda and previously the Vision 2030. What I feel this report doesn't recognize, and I, I feel there's a need, and it's linked to some of the questions that have already come, is that there's a conflation between infrastructure need and industrial need. And I do not feel all infrastructure lending is useful for industry. In the specific context of Kenya, I do feel if AFDB had lent that same amount to build feeder roads rather than the Tika road highway, um, it, would have had a more, it would have had a better impact in terms of economic transformation. The next area I want to speak to is more related to AFDB in the private sector lending. As Mark mentioned, um, everyone, uh, AFDB rightly, has done really well on um, large energy projects. So most of its private energy, uh, private sector lending is uh, is around this. And in this report, what I found most interesting was on page 15, where um, the approvals by sector, industrialized Africa, which is a high five priority, in, in, but includes finance and transport, got 14% of total approvals. But loan approval for industry was only 1%. So that I feel is a key challenge that needs to be. Uh, tackled and um, I hope, you know, I hope we can have a bit of discussion on that. I'll now speak, you know, continuing this speak um, from what I've learned from a research project I'm doing on patient finance but also from other industry experts. AFDB is seen as great for energy infrastructure projects. They're great at doing big power generation projects, Though I'm, I think still some, need, some work needs to be done in terms of the impact, in terms of actually reducing power costs throughout uh, different African countries. What it's not able to do is lend to industry, where projects are generally much smaller ticket-sized. I saw in the report a mention of um, the reviewers having uh, spoken to Dangote. My personal view is it's actually quite easy to lend to Dangote when it's got to that size, but the you know the need for lending uh, or borrowing in Africa, whether it's uh, you know the kind of mediums, a, a, a million dollars, there's really no one doing that to make firms go from the medium to large size, and there is a key challenge because um, it involves judging market risk, which I don't which I feel most DFIs uh, still don't have the capacity to do. And um, lending to industry also requires building capabilities, which is a very long-term learning by doing high-risk projects. And it may, I feel, needs a change in mindset of how DFIs actually lend. And in turn, what donors expect from DFIs in terms of the, the return. Uh, in relation to lending to SMEs, AfDB and a lot of other DFIs have taken the focus. Uh, have taken the view that they need to. They lend through banks because they obviously cannot lend directly to SMEs. And I, for example, in two thousand and fourteen, AfDB approved a hundred and forty-eight million line of credit to Equity Bank. And the idea is that this will help. Uh, increase the tenor of loans given by banks because these, in turn, are quite long-term. However, I really struggled to find data on the impact of this, and it's not clear that banks are using these funds to lend to SMEs, and in a a highly liquid market like Kenya, I think the issue of lending to SMEs is quite complex, and uh, it's not clear that these lines of credit, which I also mentioned in the report, are actually doing what they were intended to do. I'll now finalize with two other broad comments on the recommendations of the report that I found uh, a bit confusing or I um, I found um, uh, the first regarding trust funds. Now, I'm not clear why this report is advocating this. Um, and whilst I see it as a useful tool for pooling together funds, for example, on infrastructure funds or climate change funds, and I think AFDB has done a lot of that, um, how this will impact industrialization as a high five priority, I'm not clear about that. Um, And finally, the recommendation about including CSOs in improving the environmental and social impact of AFDB or other DFIs. Again, I'm not 100% clear how this will help. Um, Maybe in kind of big energy projects where a CSO is linked to local communities, I can see where there's a a clear chain of how uh, linking to CSOs would help. I personally feel that DFIs can help um, in ESA, e, in a, uh, environmental and social standards upliftment of industry, including the decent work agenda, and that can be done through, um, you know, through its lending, but I'm not clear, I'm not clear how CSOs or linking with CSOs would actually help in that um, in that um, issue so I, I agree that the, I agree that DFIs have a key role to play in improving um, environmental and social standards but I'm not clear that linking up with CSOs is the best way to do this which is one of the recommendations of the report so those are my comments for now and I look forward to the q and a and the discussion thank you.
1: Okay, th- Rada, thank you very much for that. I think um, you raised some very important points there, not just for the African Development Bank, but for development banking more generally, especially in the region, and whether it's really being effective, not in, uh, just in Pacific projects, but in its greater role in um, uh, you know, structural transformation of economies, and particularly the industrialization agenda, but also whether the assessment of inclusiveness... Uh, and the nature of inclusive growth has also been adequately reflected, and you know, not necessarily the type of projects that we might think. But you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the um, the way in fit which uh, road infrastructure, for example, is being developed, and whether there was uh, excessive uh, looking at sort of large projects rather than those which may benefit poorer households and, and increase the inclusivity of growth. So thank you very much for those remarks. Uh, I'm going to ask. Um, uh, Mark and Tampton to respond to some of the other marks that you made there about trust funds and CSOs, but let's uh, turn uh, to Eka and let uh, Eka maybe I give the floor to you to, to make your comments um, uh, on the report as well.
0: Okay,
4: uh, thank you very much for thank that. You. Thanks to all, uh, to everyone for being here, of course, and to Odai for inviting me, and of course to iKai for this important review. Um, you know, thanks for the comments you made and, and Rada as well. I think those are very rich and I'm hoping I can Build on that, um, so I'm going to structure these brief, my brief comments um, in two parts. First, I'll provide a very brief historical context um, that I hope will, I think, is always important to reintroduce as we try to understand the factors that have informed the bank's priorities over the years. Um, A lot of those are linked to some of what Rada said, Um, and then also to pick on a couple of the, uh, discuss a couple of points that engage some of the tensions. Uh, between the bank's priorities and sort of uh, uh, donor concerns, in this case the UK, um, that have been raised. So on that, I'll talk a little bit about very briefly about private sector engagement and questions on regional member states. And then finally, the important point on the UK's strategic direction in its work with the bank. These are the potential for unilateral micromanagement. Um, so with that, I'll begin. Um, I think it's important that. You know we're having this important and, dare I say, quite timely conversation um, about the work of the African Development Bank. There are a lot of things going on on the continent um, right now. This reenergization of uh, an industrial agenda around um, development. Of course, the bank also has been um, in the headlines um, uh, at this time uh, related to what what has been going on with the US. I will reflect on that very briefly um, later on. Um, so I think when we think back over when we think over time, uh, we can see how uh, African political economists, I think of Samir Amin, Claude Ake, Adebayade, were very clear about the importance of regional and continental um, integration for Africa's um, socioeconomic transformation for a range of reasons. A lot of those are related to sort of challenging the, the impact of the colonial legacy, um, recentering the importance of internal markets. A refocus on industrialization as being very much central to um, uh, economic development, economic transformation. And as ultimately in the end, what was all this about is also about repositioning um, the African continent in the global economy. So challenging is positioning um, in the global economy. And a lot of this is articulated in the, um, the Organization of African Unity's pl- uh, Lagos Plan of Action. And there, there's a very clearly articulated role for finance. So Um, There's a clear point is made about uh, how especially the African Development Bank was supposed to support national and regional industrialization processes with infrastructure investments, projects, and technology acquisition. Um, And I I, I say this, it seems like a long time ago, but I think this has remained a part of the DNA of the African Development Bank in spite of shifts over time for a whole range of reasons, not least the shifts in the movement of global development um, policy. So I would say that as part of that, this focus on infrastructure has been longstanding, the the focus that's highlighted in the report, um, the focus that Rad has also critiqued uh, somewhat now, um, has been very central to that. And also this has been a space where the bank has been successful over time. But I think this focus on infrastructure has also been because of the deficit um, on the continent, especially uh, that that emanated from the um, colonial um, uh, period. And we see a resurgence and a refocus on this with the banks, the high five has already been um, articulated. But I think key points that continue, that the banks focus on sort of the original idea of what um, socioeconomic transformation looks like in Africa, especially the points on regional integration, um, investment in energy, and of course, industrialization. Um, and I would say that going back here, we think, you know, reflecting on this again, um, should cause us to think about the reading of the bank's Think again about the reading of the bank's financing as crowding out private sector resources. I mean, the report also acknowledges that there are many issues that can make it challenging to facilitate private finance. So I see a compar- that the comparisons between the, the bank and um, economies, especially. Um, I think there was mention of um, economies in, in Europe. Um, And I think it's important to bear in mind the various challenges of the access to sort of private sector finance that these various spaces might have. And that must form a part of whatever um, conversation we're having around um, the the bank's performance, for instance, on additional financing. Um, I I think a more fundamental point for me around this is the reading that the bank should be playing, underlying all of this ideologically, the sense is that the bank should be playing a peripheral role to private capital central role um, and investment, you know, and infrastructure in general on, on, on the continent. And I would say that this is quite at odds with the developmentalist ideas that actually underscored the establishment of the bank um, and the understanding of what is supposed to be, what, what its contribution should be to socioeconomic transformation on the continent and especially to industrial um, development. Um, the bank wasn't set up to play a peripheral role on um, in finance in, in terms of regional and continental development. That's actually not what it was set up to do. Things have changed over time, but it's important for us to go back to those origins to read um, the bank's performance um, in this way. Uh, And for me, I think a fundamental question that comes up is what the role of a development bank should be. Should it be stepping into the fray where private capital cannot or will not play a role? Or does it need to be more purposed, more comprehensive, more directive in accordance with an articulated agenda for socioeconomic transformation? And I think especially where we think of the significance of of industrial um, development as central central to um, to transformation. So um, the conversation we're having now about the the role the bank should be playing around this, um, how its priorities may or may not bode well for shareholders and donors, I think needs to center more this origin of the bank's um, of the bank itself and what has informed its priorities um, across time. Yeah. And then the bank, the, its reality has been that it continues and has, it has had to and continues to negotiate um, how it manages its commitment to this uh, agenda for African transformation while it has to access the bulk of its finance from sources that are outside of, of the continent. Um, this brings me to another point that I found quite interesting in the report. There, it's, it's, the report is very nuanced, and it's true. It's 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 it's, um, it's yeah, very nuanced and very careful, um, and you know, very detailed um, in its findings. What was something very intriguing for me was to see the reference to the greater decision-making power of regional member states depicted as problematic. Um, and I think again, we must bring back to the fore that this is this was a very deliberate and a hard-won negotiated uh, outcome, um, that the bank has a structure that tilts its decision-making power in favor of regional member states, because the bank was set up to address the needs of regional member states. And, um, you know, we see how difficult it has been to achieve that when we compare with other uh, multilateral um, development uh, banks especially in the global South, where this sort of structure does not exist. Um, I think there's been a lot of consistency in trying to avoid the imbalance between those that have the resources and those that have less resources. And rather, this is something that should be lauded. Of course, there have been challenges with this in the way that some of the um, larger shareholders on the continent have been seen to potentially benefit more so than others. But I think you know, this, should be, this situation is rather a stepping block. I would see this as something that um, we should be um, exploring, understanding better. Um, it's something that we should see more widely. It should be um, a more widespread practice that the, the regional member states have a greater say in the functioning of their, um, their development um, uh, bank. Um, I think, All of this speaks again to the origins and the the roots of the bank as anti-imperialist and supporting socioeconomic transformation for the whole of the African continent. Um, And the understanding also of the interdependence across regional member states. Um, We've seen this very recent interesting work that actually speaks about experiences in uh, China and in Peru um, around how um, uh, multilateral, development finance can actually be anti-imperialist. And I think it's important that we bring this back to the fore um, in, these, um, in these conversations. Right, I come now to um, to uh, another point, or my final point really, reflecting on um, the UK strategic direction, uh, vis-a-vis what has been uh, seen potentially as a micromanagement in its work with the bank. And the report, I think, very usefully highlights this um, situation with the 2017 Performance Improvement Plan. That's also known as the Accelerated Delivery Plan, where we see the UK deploy its donor leverage to enforce its implementation of of, um, of particular policies. Um, And many challenges are raised with this situation. I think especially striking is the point around unilateralism versus the bank's multilateral um, structures. I think here, it, you know, I, I can't help but mention um, what what went on with the with the U.S. Uh, rejection of the African Development Bank's governance processes in relation to um, resolution of allegations of misconduct against the bank's um, elected president. This point was made earlier. The newly elected president Adishina, um earlier this year. Um, and I argued this elsewhere. How the deployment of donor leverage by powerful and influential hegemonic finance economies is used to insist on a vision, um, on their vision of how things ought to be done, how, how, how policies ought to be um, implemented. Um, and I think what's very interesting, what's, what's common here, and the, the I guess, modus operandi of this, is the way in which how these visions are presented as the norm, they're also presented as benign and apolitical. Um, while when we think of Africans' control of the AFDB, this, is in, you, this can be depicted as lending itself to politicization, for instance. Um, and essentially, what we see here is how finance, and indeed they are in, you know, cultural hegemons, can see the, object, the objectives as benignly adhering to some higher standards, um, even when these are, this can be due to ideological positioning. Um, and it's very essential for us to bear that in mind when we're reading these situations. Um, I think in this UK case and in the US case, um, we see a situation where processes are wrought by um, both these these countries and are seen as being superior to those within the bank. Um, And it's not always clear why. I mean, the report also highlights that. And in the case of the US, we see the vindication of of the bank's processes, again, raises questions about where this superiority um, comes from. Um, and I think, I mean, the final uh, big point I want to make here is that it is very important for us to reflect on this, especially at a time where we see the transition, where we've seen already the transition of DFID to FCDO. Um, because as part of the conversations around this transition, we've heard a lot about the concerns um, about how the, um, the, the focus of the FCDO may well increasingly be on the UK's narrowly defined interests. Yeah, and also around how the UK might align its ODA to um, those narrowly defined interests. So, you know, what can this mean going forward? You know, at this point uh, in particular, I think it's a very it's a, a very important moment to be having this conversation. Um, I think certainly we've seen with the bank uh, and also key African voices on the continent that there is an appetite to defend the bank's position um, in particular spaces, uh, but. Beyond that, what we know is that this use of donor leverage does impede on the work of the bank. So it has an impact, even, you know, even if it's a situation of how drawn out the resolution of this situation um, can be. And the report itself highlights what the impact of this situation was on the bank's activity. Um, so I'm going to end my remarks here, um, and I look forward to the exchange of ideas that, um, that follow. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you very much. I think mean, there's some very um, insightful comments, particularly around the, you know, the nature of the governance structures and, and uh, the relationships of the donors and the bank uh, in this regional role. And <coughs> um, maybe too, and um, I, I think we should start the discussion because I'm seeing some of the questions that are coming in. So uh, uh, for those of you who are, who are attending, please do continue to send them. But I see we've got a number of questions on a similar theme, uh, and particularly around. Um, some of the criticisms that have been made uh, in the report, I think, around uh, the UK's approach to micromanaging some aspects of the bank in the past, um, and to Eckers points as well, which is, you know, criticisms that we've heard about the relationship. But obviously uh, what's interesting for us at this time is that the UK in particular are entering a new phase in terms of the political economy here. Of course, we've seen the, the merger of the Foreign Office and diffid uh, into the new FCDO. And uh, several, there's several questions here, which I um, Tamsin um, um, uh, I hope you've seen here about how do you see that working? Um, and I guess there's quite an interesting question about the, you know, the one government um, uh, vision that the UK has put forward, which is about course closure coordination now between what was DFID on the Foreign Office, uh, but also about UK commercial interests. Um, and about other aspects of UK policy in the region, in particular, I think of CDC, for example, which is, a, uh, of course, a unilateral institution, nevertheless, um, w- uh, with some uh, overlap with uh, the AFDB. Kamsi, um, maybe I could ask you um, what your thoughts are on what would be an ideal uh, relationship for the SCDO to uh, try to develop in relation to uh, its work with the African Development Bank, um, both at the, uh, the head office level, but also, um, uh, someone raised the hit point to around the country uh, offices as well. Tamsin, um, would you Thanks. like to take the floor and make a few remarks uh, from, your, from your perspective there?
2: So just on the FCDO point, then, um, the, I guess, you know, the, what, what's the ideal? Uh, You know, ICAI has uh, in the past commented uh, where the UK in supporting a multilateral has acted unilaterally and that's actually undermined its overall objective. So if you look, for example, at our work on UN humanitarian reform, uh, it came up there and it's, you know, it's a general valuable principle that you're working in a different way in a multilateral and it's going to work much better if you work with other shareholders in this case uh, or or other member states to achieve your objectives. I mean, to be fair to the former DFID, they had adopted um, commonly agreed indicators as as what they were monitoring in their performance improvement plan, but the approach was seen very negatively by senior management and by other shareholders, and it was clear that that if every uh, shareholder were to behave in this way, it would completely undermine the institution. So it's certainly to be hoped, and the indications are um, that, that that approach is not being seen as the most effective now. So there are more rewards, um, if you like, for um, you know, follow, following commonly agreed positive directions rather than unilateral punishment for not, not, uh, not, not following UK-specific directions. Um, so I, I hope that that helps clarify the overall context. the more specific point about whether UK commercial interests are coming to the fore and and how that will work. Uh, I think that what we saw were some opportunities arising from the merger. As it happened at the time we were doing our review, people were being recruited under um, an an uplift for Africa which was part of the the sort of uh, strategic pivot that went back to the time when Theresa May was Prime Minister. So finally those people were recruited so there were additional uh, people, you know, being posted uh, in, in countries where the, the bank was active. So that offered new opportunities. Uh, some of them came in a context where they would partly relate to uh, Department of, of trade. And so that there, there was an interest there, um, but also more generally uh, coming from a, a wider diplomatic perspective. I think it was seen as very valuable that there's an institution which, genuinely it speaks and acts for Africa and that the UK gains from being, being part of that. So I think that the, you know, the relationship must start from that recognition of support for that African direction and, and agenda. Um, and as we said, I noticed that uh, one of the audience was questioning whether we'd put enough emphasis on country level. It's really important if it's going to work well that you have this interaction between what's actually happening on the ground and the, you know, the policy made in headquarters and, and, and what, what's said at the board uh, in relation to, to the view from headquarters. Um, so I think those are the general remarks there. I, I would like to, to say more about this, this question of, um, uh, you know, governance and the extent to which it's, a, you know, an imperial agenda being pursued. But I, I can wait my turn for that, Judith, depending on when you want to, to turn to it.
1: Um, Tamsin, t- let me ask you one clarifying question. Do you think that um, at, in the UK government's country offices, um, uh, now the FCDO, but also right across the room, that there is room for greater coordination amongst the teams? Would it be is would they, could there be more than some of the parts, or do you think?
2: Well, it, you know. <laughs> how much difference it will make at a country level that there, there's now a merger is, is not that evident compared to recent years because there was already a process of alignment going on in, in, you know, in recent times. And the, certainly where we were visiting, um, there seemed to be strong alignment. I, I'd say the only sort of lack of perfect coordination that we happened to come across was in relation to the Sahel, which was generally for the UK, a uh, you know, high priority from a humanitarian uh, and security and fragility perspective, something that the u k didn 't have that much bilateral uh, resource to engage with, and so you know rather than seeing this as was traditionally done as something to leave to the to the French, um, then then it seems opportunities were really being missed because there wasn't at this stage, despite there being a joint unit for the Sahel, a sort of across the u k uh, plan to engage on that so that's the kind of thing where there could be more opportunities uh, and, and obviously in relation to opportunities for British institutions and companies we saw right towards the end of our time we saw this COVID bond issued and that was you know partly due to this focus on uh, the UK doing something with the London Stock Exchange that you know that came to fruition so there are opportunities like that which you know probably going to be amplified uh, by the merger.
1: Okay, th- thanks very much, let-, let me ask uh, Mark a question, then maybe we can return to you about the governance um, issues that have been raised uh, both by Echo and also in the comments. Uh, Mark, would you like to-, to respond to some of the uh, questions we've got here about the safeguarding? Um, there's a particularly interesting one here about um, uh, one of the recommendations to ensure environmental and social safeguarding are implemented by the bank. Uh, is it this due in part, is it, uh, or sorry, the report suggests it is in part due to an unwillingness by the bank to challenge their regional members? Does this speak to a wider problem for the bank and regional development banks? And how can countries like the UK support the bank and others to speak more strongly in uh, environment on environmental and social safeguards? Mark, Mark, I mean, you mentioned some of this in your summary the report, where um, you commented about the, you know, the resourcing and the need to that the you know, the standards themselves were fine, but the resourcing was maybe inadequate in terms of actually implementation. Um, do, 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 maybe you could answer that uh, uh, around the. You know the the context uh, or the context of safeguarding in difficult either political context or a yeah. or country
3: yeah uh i mean i give a, a very brief written response saying that i thought the primary issue was a lack of resources um within the bank so you know we met with the safeguards team when we were in abidjan we met with the new director of the safeguards team who's actually just come across from the world bank and asked asked him directly how he compared the policies um, and that 's why we concluded that, based on that discussion that the, it, the the problem is not at the level of policies, the problem is at the level of resources within the bank but you could say well why aren 't there more resources allocated to the team so maybe that 's a decision but that 's in the context of um an overall very stretched bank you know so on the one hand, people point to um, sort of uh, uh, various cost ratios which put the bank kind of at one end of a spectrum in terms of efficiency, but we felt that um, in general terms, uh, the issue now was that actually the bank needed more resources in some areas in order to deliver greater value for money rather than kind of cutting costs further. Um, So I think this, we, we reckon there were about 20 people working on environmental and social safeguards right across the bank and then when we, you know, when we actually looked into this in our in our two country cases, you you could see on the ground that the bank is just stretched too thin. Um, it has to rely on other banks to do some of the follow up work, etc. Um, that said, we also had interviews with people working um, for government transport departments that, you know, said, "Look, the bank, um, it's it's not it's not the first to." Um, you know, it's not in the vanguard in terms of safeguards. If there's a new initiative or um, a new way of doing things, it it will normally not be the bank that's that's proposing that. It'll be the World Bank or it'll be one of the bilaterals. But the the bank will follow, you know, so it's not as if the bank is a long way behind the others in terms of safeguards, Uh, certainly not in terms of policies and intentions. It's it's not leading the pack, but uh, it's not trailing behind the pack either. Um, and yeah, that's 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 it really, and I think that that's what that's what we found. That's what we saw. Yeah,
1: thank you much. Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of a difference between um, something that is value for money and something that is cheap, uh, in the sense that yeah. value for money is about being efficient, uh, but you you know you also need the resources to do a particular job. And when certainly twenty people for the whole of the African Development Bank is a pretty uh, uh, except, well a uh, very thin team in terms of their ability to deliver quality. So, we, saw some
3: very, um, we saw some very impressive stuff in um, Uganda around one of the road projects just on the border with Kenya, some grievance redress committees that were set up, um, you know, all along the, uh, uh, the road development and talked to the people involved in those and, and really came away with a good impression about um, how actively they were engaging with the communities, kind of sniffing out issues uh, you know, on the interface between the work, the, the, the workforce and the local communities. Some of that had been put in place in 2016, 2017, after a major scandal occurred on a World Bank project, which suddenly made people aware of, uh, of um, actually, this was a safeguarding issue. So it was a sexual harassment issue. But the bank very quickly put in place its own um, procedures. So, you know.
1: Yeah, it was certainly my impression that particularly at the grounds roots level of people executing projects, such as in some other, you know, the, the uh, field work we did in country, that the staff at the, at the bank were, were very concerned about these issues and aware of them. And in many ways that counts as much as having a great safeguarding team and that you have people at the project level who are doing want and know and do the right thing in yeah. terms of uh, executing you know, their projects.
3: And you know, the reality of these things is always just so complicated. So, you know, one, you know, one project we, we went to, you know, it was a displaced persons project. Families had been moved several years before. Where do you move them? Well, the reality is, you know, land costs money. So they end up being moved to, to land, which is quite cheap. What's cheap land? It's land that's a long way away. So these families had been moved to really very remote places that were not well connected. And, um, and then no one had kind of followed up. You know uh, because that's what happens organizations move on so i'm not saying it's kind of drastically worse than elsewhere but if you're short of, of people then you're not going to follow up several years later we did and um there was a problem because these these, these were stranded families and uh, people had forgotten about them so we pointed it out
2: yeah thank you
1: very much John. Um, and let me, let me refer back to you because i think you're going to make some some comments about the governance um structure as well uh, at the bank and um Uh, as we know, there were challenges to it in in relation to Adesina uh, recently, although, um, as Eka uh, mentioned, there was an internal and then an external uh, um, investigation which uh, exonerated um, any wrongdoing at the bank. But um, Tamsin, would you like to comment more broadly on on that topic?
2: I would, and I'm I'm actually going to preface it by picking up something on safeguards, because in talking about governance, I want to talk about, if you like, checks and, and balances to control any potential conflicts of interest, And a question was brought up as to why we had said there wasn't sufficient engagement with CSOs. And this was just one of the areas, and of course there are others, gender, decent work and so on, uh, where it's very striking compared to other uh, IFIs and MDBs that there was very little interaction from civil society and certainly not from from the ground level. Which, which didn't really help in you know, the right kind of accountability to, to citizens uh, for, for the bank's activities. Uh, so that, that was striking. And one of the most interesting things that I heard from one civil society participant, who was a, an international NGO representative, was that headquarters was not interested in, in bashing, this informally, the African Development Bank, but only uh, institutions like the, the World Bank. And the IMF and that was something to do with it being an African institution. Uh, which, which brings me to the, to the wider points raised uh, by Eka and others about uh, governance and I, I mean I, I hope it did come across. You've, you've rightly said that we, we do a lot of saying on the one ha- on the one hand and on the other in our report, that's, that's dead right and I hope it was clear that we were pretty positive about the African Development Bank's African nature Uh, And, you know, the advantages for for the UK in in engaging and in in supporting that and in not undermining that. Uh, Having said that, I think that there are some real challenges in ensuring the right checks and balances for governance, which in the African Development Bank's case sometimes come out in the regional versus non-regional question. And before I start addressing this tricky area, I should say that a part of my CV that Judith Missed out. So I spent something like six years working for the European Investment Bank, uh, and, and a, a couple of those on the board of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And so I always had in my mind, you know, other MDBs and, and how they work. Uh, and I, you know, at the EBRD we actually had a, a process which was meant to increase the um, the control of recipient countries. Although in, in the event it only gave. Uh, more control to Greece, uh, which wasn't the original intention because of course it, it became a, uh, a boring country during the time. So I think while I was at the European Investment Bank, that it very much struck me that there, there are constant uh, risks of vested interest leading to poor lending if the governance means that there are no checks and balances when the political representatives, you know, chosen by uh, their countries to have a leading role in decision-making in the, in the bank are under enormous pressure. And I was there during the time of the financial crisis. So there are always kind of potentially threats to, to good decisions. Uh, and, you know, uh, often the, the most difficult things don't, don't get done uh, if, if there aren't those checks and balances in, in the EU. Um, which is where most of the lending happens, then sometimes the checks and balances would come from the way the governance was set up. Uh, but I think it's arguable, although a completely heretical position, it would have been of benefit to the EIB had they had non regional shareholders as, as part of their setup. I don't see them agreeing to that anytime soon. Um, but, but apart from that potential way of doing it, there are, of course, ways of arranging the decision making to mitigate against. Uh, in, so in the, in the case of the African Development Bank, I think that the, the non-regionals have sometimes adopted roles which you know, help the regionals to do the right thing. And I think it's in that context that there can be a value to it. Uh, and it, the governance has been calibrated quite carefully in relation to the voting powers uh, and so on. What, what I... Uh, What I don't think I would really comment on in any detail is is the the issue of the allegations about President Adesina, because we weren't looking into that, uh, and we certainly weren't in any position to second guess what the review found or to know know what the basis was for, for the US and others. I think the UK went with them in the end in deciding that there needed to be a further process. Uh, but I think it, it is fair to say that it, it is always good that there are several layers of checks and balances to ensure that ethical breaches are not, um, you know, left untouched. And I noticed there was lots of comments about this kind of issue on the Internet, with some people saying, you know, uh, some people saying on the one hand, well, these are just racist attacks on uh, on President Adesina, whereas others saying, you know, the, the truly African thing is to make sure that we have you know, the, the proper checks and, uh, you know, that we have the high ethical standards that we should be known for. Um, so it's probably as much as I can say on that. I mean, certain, we certainly didn't review the governance, we were just looking at some of the consequences of it, basically, and how decisions were made.
1: Tamsi, T- maybe I can ask you one final question on the governance, uh, which is from um, a question from the audience which I think is quite an interesting one, but more about the FCDO. Uh, The question is, the FCDO's response says it will accept all of the recommendations except the first one, which it partially accepts. This all sounds very promising, but are there any areas missing from the response in ICAI's view, view? and did uh, the FCDO response go far enough?
2: Well, it's great to have that question, because I hope you'll be on tenterhooks and watching the discussion we we have in Parliament, so I won't sort of steal all, all the thunder from there. Uh, because, you know, we try and read through the responses and work out what they're really saying. And it's been our observation in ICAI over many years that, that sometimes the government will only partially accept or even reject a recommendation at the time. And then we find out at our follow-up that they are, in fact, fully implementing it. Uh, so the interesting thing about the, the first recommendation is that we were discussing it, um, you know, as we went through the review. Uh, and so therefore our, you know, our recommendation in effect was informing an actual decision-making process and we were observing at the time that, that already um, the government was really adjusting the, the way that it was working and away from what was frankly an unusual if not unique approach uh, in the context of, of the multilaterals. Uh, in the, at least I think Mark will correct me if I'm wrong, we found it hard to identify another exactly analogous case where there was a, a, a specific reduction in the replenishment as a result of a, a perceived performance failing in, in, to the extent that we, we saw it in the African Development Bank. But it does seem to me that they are um, accepting uh, the direction of our recommendation, but it's almost as if um, you know, they don't want to be uh, accepting that they ever did anything wrong in the past. And, and, and I think that's a sort of normal thing when we do reviews. Um, that it, you know, that it's not usual that you say any department we're looking at saying, oh, yes, we were completely wrong two years ago. Thank you for pointing that out. But um, perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong and we'll find out more uh, you know, when we have our, our hearing in Parliament.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Thompson. Um, Maybe we can, um, uh, I'd, I'd like to finish with a couple of questions for Rada and for Eka. Um, really a little bit more about some of the criticisms that they made in their comments, but what they would like to see done or what could be more positively done, uh, possibly through the African Development Bank, but also more generally. Um, Rada, I don't know if I could ask you first. Um, you raised this, uh, you know, your, the comments about the lack of financing in some key areas for uh, industrialization and particularly the fact that I think you said it, was 1% of financing is going into um, uh, you know, private sector in, uh, uh, industrialization and um, I see we've also got some questions about the uh, low level of financing that's going to the agricultural sector despite of course it being a, a you know, sector of a high level of concentration for uh, low-income households in the region. Um, what do you think could be done to increase those type of uh, the the financing in these sectors, either by institutions like the African Development Bank or more generally?
2: Um,
0: As I said, I think there are no easy answers. Um, There was a question on the agriculture in in this report, again on page 15, um, agriculture why sector got 11 percent and then by high five priority the feed africa also got 11 percent i'm sure there are different overlaps it's still not adequate to for the for the need for economic transformation and uh for the fact for the level of proportion of people employed in agriculture in africa but as i said there are not any clear-cut answers particularly because multilaterals and uh, DFIs in general are, um, are, are designed to do big projects. Yeah. And uh, it's actually very hard to do, uh, you know, it's very, it's very easy to do uh, 30 million dollars, you know, to, to spend 30, 40 million on a power project. Uh, very hard to find 40 firms that have the capacity to absorb a million dollars of debt on their books mm. so that key challenge of getting firms to that level to absorb that um, remains um, and that's what I said I think it, it really needs sort of this almost redesign of how um, multilaterals do that sort of work and whether it's like linked up to more national level uh, development finance institutions um, but it it I don't think there are very many easy answers.
1: Yeah, I tend tend to agree with you. There's not an easy answer, of course. um... Uh, as you point out, uh, you know, as you point out earlier in some of your comments, the, you know, the, uh, some of these large institutions try to achieve scale through intermediary lending to financial institutions. But the evidence for that type of lending for SME you know, the impact on the SME sector is relatively limited. Uh, so it provides some you know, short-term financing, but it doesn't really uh, increase the level of capital uh, investment in many of these sectors or the scale of the enterprises. So it's kind of uh, more of a survivalist strategy than, than a, a transformational strategy. Um, and of course, Rod, as you know as well, if we look at the private sector, we see a very similar pattern, if not worse, in the banking sector too, uh, where the level of uh, lending to these less commercially attractive but much more important sectors is very low. Um, as you mentioned, uh, though, also maybe there's a, um, uh, a space for um, more national or sort of smaller development banks of various types to, to fill that space. Yeah. Um, so we've only got a few minutes left and I want to um, thank, thank you very much Val. Uh, um, maybe I can um, just uh, uh, ask you um, uh, a little bit more about, to expand on your remarks. You commented about the, um, uh, some of the, the criticisms of the governance structure and, and the relationship of donors with, with the bank. Um, but particularly, um, maybe I can ask you the same question I asked Tams a little bit, particularly in the context of uh, the FCDO uh, formation, Um, What do you think would be the top policy recommendations for the UK to um, uh, rethink the, you know, some of the nature of their um, uh, relationships and governance uh, of some of these institutions, particularly those where they are donors, but also uh, maybe should be, you know, stepping back in terms of um, the uh, uh, African ownership, I use ownership in a loose term, but um, uh, ownership and uh, governance uh, in the region.
4: Well, thank you very much uh, for that, and, and thanks for all the comments, of course, but Tanzan's uh, reflections also earlier on. Um, I, I think it's interesting that in the government's response, the, the one where they say they partially accept is the one on, on governance. So, for me, that's an interesting, you know, worrying point as well, When we, especially reflecting on what I said in the end about all the furore that surrounded the shift from DFID to FCDO, and you know, what that means for the UK's uh, engagement to its own strategic interests. Um, I, of course, support the recommendation that's being made here. Um, but I think my my sense is this needs to be a more structural sense in how seriously counterparts are being taken on, on the continent. So I take Tamsin's point, and I appreciate this comparison with the um, European um, Bank for uh, Reconstruction and Development. I think, actually, those examples are very important um, for making the point that this is not an African problem. So some of the arguments I'm making and the arguments many other people are making are because this is always posited as, you know, is the African problem. Look at all corruption indices, look at all that. Now, if we take that out and say, actually, banks have these challenges in general, then we have to, so it is from that place we're having this conversation about governance structures. Then that's okay. There is a larger issue though, in that the challenges with the EBRD Actually, the donor leverage doesn't play a role there. Now, you know, having non-regional members doesn't have, and the influence of non-regional members doesn't have the same influence as non-regional members in the African Development Bank because of the structure of the of the economy and because of the way that Africa is positioned within that global economy. So this is where things are a bit different, and this is where you know I think it's a bit. It's a bit more challenging, that conversation about the influence of non-regional members in the African context, because we have to historicize this. This is coming from a place where Africa has been been positioned in very particular ways by some of these non-regional members, and we can't detach from that history. So really, I support this, but I think we really have to come to a place where it's about the structures within the bank itself. How do we, so yes, in the end, we come around to that, but this sort of uh, unilateral actions around, this is how things must be done, must be problematized. We must also problematize how these are presented as the norm, right? This this is the norm, this is how things ought to be done. Ought, like where does this come from? These are always positioned ideologically in but on, on, on a spectrum, you know, they come from an idea around uh, um, um, market fundamentalism. They come from, so we must, I think, recognize all of those in the conversations. That's how I went to see this. So not a simple answer, I'm afraid, uh, but I think, I hope a helpful one nonetheless.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, let me just answer a couple uh, of the questions. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll answer them just uh, in terms of timing, just but so people have had responses, and then I'm going to ask each of the panelists to um, to uh, make a couple of concluding remarks. Rather, than will you first, then Mark, then uh, Tamsin, if you could go last. Um, so uh, Roy Cross asks, what hope do we have of placing a piece in the Daily Mail, in, in the Daily Mail to publicise the excellent work DFID does with the AFDB? Uh, I have to say I, I have a personally quite a cynical view of the of the press, and unfortunately they love a bad news story. Uh, And I'm sure Tamsin has had many experiences of this where they tend to, of course, uh, particularly, um, maybe uh, um, a newspaper like the Daily Mail that has a particular political agenda, looks, you know, and searches for the bad examples. And of course, there's also always going to be some failures as well as successes. Uh, We just have to um, uh, try to, I think, um, be balanced when we see in the press ourselves, but also um, be aware that uh, those who are influential in policy circles often have much more balanced and um, uh, nuanced, I was about to use intelligent, but maybe you read the Daily Rail intelligent perspective. i um, also asked, I had a question um, about, um, uh, you know, does the world, does African Development Bank um, contribute to debt problems, particularly in Nigeria? I have to say personally, I'd say it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it is in fact quite a unique source of long-term and uh, often a concessional financing, And but, uh, but also quite important is when there are, are debt problems, as of course we're seeing it right across the continent right now, um, they are much softer in terms of pressing uh, for payment or, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, accepting restructuring of debt and so on, and, and largely because of their dual agenda. I would say personally, the problem that we have in the region right now is a heavy level of indebtedness with purely private investors, particularly in the eurobond market, uh, where, you know, they are primarily concerned with repayment and have no interest in the development agenda. Uh, and in Nigeria, of course, particularly, it's very pro-cyclical uh, in terms of commodity prices and therefore you know, the ability to sustain debt is very highly, you know, closely linked to its fiscal situation uh, in, in terms of commodity revenues. And really long term, we need to think about diversification of economies and weaning countries off that type of uh, you know, pro-cyclical uh, fiscal approaches. So I hope those answers those two questions. You can you can send me another uh, answer if you disagree with that, Um, but let's maybe we've just got five minutes and one minute each uh, for the panel to round round up with a couple of, uh, I hope, uh, Pithy points that you might like to make or uh, what what stood out for you from the discussion. Uh, Rada, would you like to go first?
0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think just coming, uh, I think my final comment would be just very much based around the discussion we've been having on industry and agriculture, that whilst i feel that they're very hard uh, to crack and very hard for uh, development finance institutions i do believe that that's where the main productivity productivity enhancing measures will come um, and it's really important whether it involves a change in mindset or the ch- a change in the way staffing is done of dfis or um it's it's really important that that agenda is not forgotten because it's not easy to do. So I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Rada. Uh, Eka? Thank
4: you for that. Thanks to everyone for this opportunity. It's been fascinating. Um, I agree with Rada entirely. I mean, I think, especially, you know, agriculture, but also linked to structural transformation of economies. I really think socioeconomic transformation is centered um, around these real sectors of the economy. Um, and so it's great to see the banks work on infrastructure and spending, but I agree that we need to see uh, more of this. Of course, a lot of what I said already on the governance question, I think in the report, I was very pleased to see a very nuanced report, uh, very, very well researched, representing a whole um, a range of voices in there. So it's, it's you know, very good work, I would, I would say. Um, and yeah, on this, on this governance question, I think we need to rethink it. I think it's topical. We've seen the US, this example in the UK. It's not going to be going away because in the African context as well, there's a, you know, uh, talking back, there's a, you know, we we have to engage this, we have to debate this. And um, it's also because of how the continent is seeing itself and working towards that. So this governance question will not go away, even though FCDO says it partially accepts this. I think it, you know, it has to think about shifting on that, on that partially, on that partial um,
3: acceptance.
4: Thank you.
1: So maybe a little deeper thinking on that point from the FCDO. Uh, Mark?
3: Yeah. So I, I've, um, as I said at the beginning, I, I I started off not knowing much about the bank. Uh, had a background in the World Bank. I um, uh, think I'm probably fairly typical of a lot of people that work in um, in, in the World Bank, at different and elsewhere. And um, you know, my sense is that the uh, the African Development Bank ha- goes about its its business in a much quieter way than some other organisations. It's a bit of an untold story. Um, um, mm, it doesn't produce necessarily the very high profile research, uh, global research as other organizations do, even though it's analysis is good actually, but it actually doesn't make as much of it as it, as it could do. Uh, and it's, it's a bit skint, you know, it's stretched very tightly. So, um, uh, I've come away with a very positive, uh, impression of, of the bank. Uh, and actually, um, as, as, Looking at uh, DFID in the UK, at the end of the day, UK is the largest contributor to the ADF. You know, so it is actually investing in this uh, institution more than anyone else's. So, you know, one can't forget that uh, for all all the criticisms we've made about the approach of the PIP and so forth. So I think the thing that's really needed now is um, it's a bit like, you know, the fishing rod and giving the person fish idea, you know, this is an institution that is part of the uh, part of the African fabric, part of the institutional fabric in, in Africa, and, and it it merits investment, and it's very difficult. So this culture of performance, um, making sure it's got the resources, uh, trying to trying to shift the culture from kind of rules to accountability, you know, really getting it to function as well as it possibly can do. I think is the priority. Um, and I would love to see FCDO really thinking hard how it can help the bank move to the next level of effectiveness uh, because I think it's a, it's a very, very important uh, institution.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. And um, I tend to agree that I also came away with a very um, good impression of the bank and of, the, of the, the, you know, the, the work that it does in a good nitty-gritty way. Not necessarily sort of aspirations to be a knowledge bank, but... Uh, pragmatic um, and delivery of pro- you know some excellent projects right across the region. Uh, Tamsin, maybe, uh, the last word should go to our ICI Commissioner.
2: Well, thank you very much. As I mentioned, this is our longest ever review. And, uh, you know, it's great to hear words of praise which, you know, all should go to, to Mark, Judith and others on the team for their fantastic work on this review. Uh, and, you know, I think the, there are actually way more people interested in this webinar than we ever thought likely. We thought this was just a niche interest for those of us who recognize the, you know, the enormous importance of, well, first of all, the, the IFI system, but specifically within it, the African Development Bank, which I, I completely agree with uh, Mark and the others. You know, it's, it's underappreciated. And, and we hope that our review is going to, you know, put the spotlight. Um, on it, at, at least as far as the UK's uh, engagement with it goes. It feels timely, even though it, it, it took so long, at least it came out at a time uh, when the appetite for engagement does appear to be increasing. And uh, in our follow-up process, we're going to try and make sure that uh, you know, we follow through the most important areas you know, the African Development Bank hasn't uh, achieved the billions to trillions, but then you know, neither have, have the others, as ODI has been the, the first to point out, the others in the system. But it does have uh, enormous potential to contribute to structural transformation in, in Africa. Uh, and as Mark mentions, the UK does actually play an important role in supporting that if it, if it does what it should. So I hope you'll continue to take an interest uh, in, in, in what happens with that. Follow through but it's been a really rich discussion today I've particularly taken away lots of useful thoughts from my fellow panelists so thank you very much to all of you and of of course also to all the questioners I'm not sure I caught all of them but it was wonderful to see that we have an institutional memory going back to the 1980s so hopefully we fit into that that long view but thank you very much
1: Okay, Tamsin, thank you very much. And uh, uh, thank you very much too to uh, uh, all of the um, uh, participants for attending the ODI seminar and and for ICAI for partnering uh, with us. Uh, And of course to Radha and Eka for your your great uh, comments. Uh, And uh, maybe we should also, um, for those from the African Development Bank, say also thank you very much to those who worked with uh, ICAI and the ODI on the review. Um, uh, And I hope uh, both uh, them and uh, FCDA will find it useful uh, going forward. So thank you very much.